Matthew chapter 25. If you have an app, if you have a hard copy Bible, please turn there with me. We're going to be spending some time camped out in Matthew chapter 25. Now, while you guys turn there, what I want to do is just give you a little bit of a recap. We've been out of Matthew for almost a month. Now, as a side note, we've made the the teachings from Anthem Thousand Oaks available for you guys in our podcast feed, in our app. And so if you have not already gotten a chance, like those are resources available for you guys uh, to catch up with throughout Matthew chapter 23 and 24. So be sure to check that out. We'd love for you to be tracking back along. But even as I was studying and preparing and praying this week, I'm so excited to be back in the book of Matthew with you guys. It's, it's been kind of a wild month and a half, and, and I'm aching for rhythm in life. And so we're diving back into Matthew. Uh, are going to enjoy it. Um, so go ahead and turn there. We're deep in the book of Matthew. So we're in week 70, if you are counting along. Uh, it's been a great run working to understand Jesus, his life, ministry, and place in God's plan of salvation. And And this has been a crazy significant book for us as a church community. It's been really formative. And for a lot of you guys who are here in this room, this is the only book you've ever been through with Anthem Ventura. And so it's been really profound in in understanding who we are and our role here in Ventura. And we're currently in Matthew uh, 25 out of chapters 28. And so we're in that final stretch. And if you guys have either been watching the the teachings from Anthem Thousand Oaks or if you've just been reading along, uh, kind of this portion of Matthew is, is a bit weird. So Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and starts getting really extreme with some of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Uh, He starts answering some questions in really cryptic ways. He starts unloading on his disciples. And it just, it seems like in this part of the book, Jesus makes a left turn and, and speaks differently and is teaching differently. And he's trying to communicate something really unique to his disciples. So to bring you up to speed on where we're at, the book of Matthew has covered Jesus' birth and then fast-forwarded 30 years to cover his, his ministry as a teacher, miracle worker, Messiah, Savior. So from ages 30 to 33, Jesus went through the region of, of northern Israel called Galilee. He's teaching, he's healing, performing miracles, and, and word about Jesus has spread beyond that region. His fame is spreading all over the area. And so people are coming to him from all parts of of the nation and even the surrounding nations to see and experience what Jesus is up to. And his teaching has been really poignant and and difficult. He was frequently referencing the kingdom of God, and, and it seemed different than what many people were expecting. So it's important to know is the nation of Israel had been an occupied land and people for hundreds of years, and they had a history of being roped into slavery or occupation. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene in the book of Matthew, we see that the nation of Israel, particularly their leaders, but the nation as a whole, had wrapped up this idea of Jesus the Messiah with some sort of military and political victory. And so it was all kind of put in a blender as one. And so as they are thinking through this promised Messiah that Yahweh had been writing to them and talking with them about for hundreds and thousands of years, for them that is melded into some version of military and political victory. And so when Jesus comes on the scene talking about loving your neighbor and being a peacemaker and being meek, these things do not compute for the people who ought to have seen Jesus coming. And over the last few chapters, as we've looked into the final weeks and months of Jesus's life and ministry, we see him get more pointed and specific about uh, something that's not super popular to talk about, but about judgment. 
and about the judgment that will come for those that do not receive him, particularly to Israel and its leaders. They have specifically missed the messages that God has been sending them through the prophets, and now they're going to be held accountable uh, for their mismanagement of God's name, his message, and his people. And so the final straw is that is going to be that God sent Israel the Messiah that he had been promising, and they are going to be complicit in killing this promised Messiah. So it's kind of a, a grim space that the nation of Israel is in. And in this time, Jesus is preparing his disciples for something unique. We're in the part of the story now where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples after he left the temple in Jerusalem and he's filling them in on some specific answers to their questions, particularly about his second coming and what to do in that time between. That time between when he's going to leave earth as they know it and then return again to make everything right. And he's been giving teaching to his disciples and to us to prepare us for that time in between his death, resurrection, and ascension, and then his second coming again. He has told us in no uncertain ways that this interim period will be filled with difficulty both for us as believers and danger for all humanity. This is not going to be a purely happy, fun time with rainbows and unicorns, but God's people will experience persecution and trial and suffering. And there are two huge things we need to understand about the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus communicates to his disciples and to us. And the first is it'll be sudden, and the second is no one knows when he's coming. The disciples, if you've noticed in these last couple of chapters, keep trying to poke and prod, hey, when is this happening? Are we going to be your right hand? What's this going to be like? And what he's trying to communicate to his disciples is it'll be sudden, and no one knows when this is happening. And so that definitely has implications for how we live, right? If we knew the exact day and time when Jesus is coming, our broken human nature would delay and procrastinate all Christian living until the minute before, just so we could be swept up. So this has implications for how we live here and now. So before we dig into chapter 25, we need to grapple with something that feels very foreign to us in in Southern California particularly, And that is the reality that life will not always go on as it is now. So I don't know about you guys. uh, I just turned 30 last year, and I have three kids. And so my mind is rolling with, like, stuff like Kevin and Vanessa are talking about, like legacy, kind of long-term planning. Like, I I don't, up until last year, I didn't have, like, a retirement account or anything. And so now I'm thinking through all of these different things. And I don't know about you guys, but it's so easy to run down that rabbit trail and kind of have your life be dominated by, like, what am I going to do for the next 50, 60 years? How am I going to provide for my family after I'm unable to work? And and all of these questions that in, in their own right can be good and healthy, but I, I obsess over them. And I, and I go down these rabbit holes and I'm thinking and I'm like constantly living in that place, abandoning thought of, of what I'm doing here and now and today. And I convince myself that life will always go on as it is now. So I can plan today for the things that are coming tomorrow or the things that are coming in 50 years. And Scripture reminds us it is foolish to think that way if we think our life now will be life always. The writer James in chapter 4 reminds us, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It's a sobering reminder that we do not know what is coming to tomorrow, but we should trust instead in the plan of the Lord. And this may be one of the most crucial pitfalls for the church today. And this is kind of a total pendulum swing from what characterized a lot of the church in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. If you guys have been uh, kind of brought up in a Christian household, maybe some of your parents experienced this, but kind of this obsession of the return of Jesus, but not an obsession of like fixing your eyes on the hope of salvation, but the obsession of like the day and the time and looking for Antichrist and, oh, Israel's a nation, so that counts this clock down, and now we can time when Jesus is coming back. And, and for a season, the church, at least in America, was so obsessed obsessed with all the ins and outs and details of Jesus' return, of which, remember, he tells us nobody actually knows, that we lose sight of here and now. And I believe the church as a whole has pendulum shifted way to the other side of things. And I, I, I mean, when was the last time you have meditated and thought about the second coming of Jesus? This is not to point a finger. Like, I had to, I wrestled through that same question. I was like, oh man, this is a core tenet of Christianity, that Jesus has come once to set about his kingdom, to begin his church, and he is coming again to make all things right. He is coming again to restore all creation and all humanity. When was the last time I thought about that? When was the last time I was actively putting my hope in that reality, not in my own strength or my own money or my own family or my own friendships? It was convicting for me to sit there and, and wrestle with in Matthew 24, just the, the chapter right before, towards the end, we get this picture of those who have, have forgotten kind of the overarching plan of God, those who are too focused on their affairs. And Matthew, at recording the words of Jesus, recounts the days of Noah. He says in verse 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Notice the comparison that Jesus draws between his coming and the flood in the time of Noah. Up until the day of the flood, people were acting as if life would always go on. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, Noah tries to convince people of what's happening, and, and all he gets in return is, is ridicule and persecution. But people were acting up until the minute the floodwaters came as if life would always go on as it has. They were clueless, and they didn't realize that they were only days or minutes away from being swept away in the judgment of God, despite 120 years of warnings from Noah. It's a long time of him building this ark and trying to warn everybody he knows about what's coming. Jesus says it'll be just like that when he comes again. That people will be carrying on as if life goes on forever and people will be shocked and surprised. And finally, in, in verses 42 through 51 of the previous chapter, Jesus gives the ultimate challenge to be on alert. Don't fall asleep like the people in the days of Noah. Look at verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44. Therefore, you must also, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So this is a huge theme throughout God's Word, this idea of readiness. And realize that everything, and we have to realize that everything in this world, everything connected to this world is temporary. 
Your job, your spouse, your children, your finances, your new car you just got, the house you really want to move into, all that stuff is temporary, absolutely temporary. And Jesus' encouragement to us is to fix our eyes on him, the one who is eternal. John, the apostle and writer, reminds us of this in 1 John chapter 2, where he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Peter picks up on this same theme of fixing our eyes towards Jesus. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's this overwhelming narrative in Scripture to not put all your eggs in the basket of the world, but to look towards Jesus as our hope, as our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate value. Let that inform life here and now. One of the things we've talked about so frequently in the book of Matthew is to fix your eyes on Jesus and to make all your decisions in life accordingly. Fix your eyes on Jesus and his kingdom and align your life accordingly. So that brings us to chapter 25, where we see Jesus sharing two stories. And the main point of both of these stories, I'm just going to tell you right up front, is Jesus teaching his disciples specifically how they should live in his absence. Jesus is teaching his disciples specifically how they should live in his absence. And he shares two stories to unpack that idea. So that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 25. That was my big long intro to get us to this point of understanding for what is going on here in these two stories. Read with me, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Second story. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went and once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he had, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, if you're a highlighter or underliner, after a long time, that is an important detail in the story, the master of those servant came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the first five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and in my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast... And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, these stories end in some pretty grim spaces, right? (laughs) Remember, the main point of both of these is the same. Jesus is teaching his disciples specifically about how to live in his absence. So in these two stories that we went through, the main idea and Jesus' ultimate goal is very clear. He is going to go away. That has been made clear. And there's responsibility that is put on his disciples in the time when he is gone. Okay? Jesus is teaching about how to live in his absence right now. This is for us. He's not just talking to his disciples 2,000 years ago. He's teaching us about how to live as we await his second coming. There is responsibility on those who would follow Jesus during that time he is gone. So Jesus is not reiterating the specific instructions he's given them at this point. The message has become really clear. And the disciples don't seem very curious about about all of that, but we see Jesus kind of laying foundation and laying teaching for the things that ought to be important, for the things that ought to be occupying their disciples' time. He's giving them a healthy understanding of what it looks like to act on all that he has taught so far. So we have two stories, and in that first story, he uses a first-century wedding, which is probably very foreign to us, and so when you read Ten Virgins, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Why are there ten virgins at this wedding? So let me just unpack a little bit about what is happening here to help us understand what we're supposed to get out of this. So, like, as with every parable, they're not designed to be complete theological systems in and of themselves, so you cannot derive a certain doctrine or theology from one parable, as some have done with each of these. What they do is they give a glimpse or a picture into an aspect that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. So he tells this story about the young women who would accompany the bride on her wedding day. So this story, when you read Ten Virgins, think bridesmaids. And the story focuses in on the bridegroom and the bridesmaids for the bride. The bride is conspicuously absent from this story. The focus is on those who would be attending the bride during this day. 
So it doesn't make any sense to you. That's okay. If you were living in Israel in first century, you would totally get what is going on here. But it would be like groomsmen, bridesmaid talks. That's who the story is focusing on. So the bridesmaids would form a, prof- a processional from the bride's home to the home of the bridegroom for this great banquet after the vows have been exchanged. The groom comes for the bride, and there's, great, uh, there's a great procession from the bride's home to the bridegroom's home, and the, the bridesmaids would carry these torches to light the way. So it's critical for them to have enough oil to keep their torches burning all the way to the bridegroom's home. That's the picture, right? So think of like at the end of some weddings, we got the sparklers, or you do the tunnel or whatever. Same kind of idea. So these, uh, these virgins or the bridesmaids are like, they have a role to play in this procession from the bride's house to the bridegroom's house. Okay, so the, the wait for the, the bride was longer to be expected, so they all became tired and asleep. Okay, so there's a great length of time that happened. And there were five foolish bridesmaids who forgot to purchase extra oil so that they would be ready, and five wise ones who were completely prepared for what was coming. So the foolish virgins go to the store to try to purchase their oil, but when they're doing that, the bridegroom comes, and they are left out of the wedding. The procession would start late at night on the first night of the seven-day wedding celebration, and all the women went out to, to where they were to meet the bridegroom. Some brought extra oil for the lamp, and others didn't. And it's right here in this kind of contrast of the two different bridesmaids that is the point of the story. Jesus is saying something that would have been very obvious, uh, obviously wise or foolish to his disciples. But if you're a young woman in a bridal party, you don't take your lantern out for an all-night procession and not take the extra oil. Like, you come prepared. That would be foolish if you did that. And so, this is kind of a a simple parable once we understand the context of this wedding, that there are those who were prepared in their waiting and those who weren't prepared. And the main point that Jesus is making is that their job going out from here is to live wisely and alertly. Not sure if alertly is a word, but wisely and alertly. That is the disciples' job. Don't do foolish things that contribute to your unpreparedness. Spend time, rather, preparing yourselves for when Jesus comes back. That's the point of the first parable. And the next story, in verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells uh, the story that highlights the characteristics of stewardship and integrity when the master is absent. So in this first story, we have this theme of, like, prepared waiting, like what to do while we're just waiting around for Jesus to return. And the second story gives us a glimpse of what stewardship looks like in that time in between. The reality that God has entrusted you and I with certain things. And we have to make choices and decisions about what we're going to do with those things in his absence. So the basic storyline is that the master dispenses his resources to three servants, gives them really minimal instructions on what to do, but did give them the resource based on their abilities that he had observed. So each servant chooses to do with the resources that They've been chest with them. They kind of choose whatever. So the first one that had five invested doubled their resources. Got five, got another five, presents ten. The second servant, two, makes two, comes back. And the third servant has one, digs a hole, makes nothing on it, and returns the original amount. The master returned after a significant amount of time and returns to his servants to see how they have managed his resources in his absence. And the main idea of the parable of the talents is that Jesus is teaching his disciples to manage their time, their energy, their money, their responsibilities, their abilities effectively while he is gone. 
This is one of those texts where we're able to understand a bit more of this biblical concept of stewardship, that everything is the Lord's, and he has for a short time entrusted you and I some of those resources. What will we do with them? We'll be stewards or consumers of them. And Jesus is, is teaching to be good stewards of all that he has entrusted you while he is gone. He has already taught them that he wants them to be wise and faithful servants while he's gone. And this parable is designed to show them exactly what Jesus means when he says to be wise and faithful after he has left. He says, take what I've given you and go create. Take what I've given you and be creative. Take what I've given and invest into things of this kingdom. Help advance my mission. Help advance my kingdom here on earth. The things you have been entrusted with are not for your happiness. This is really important for us to understand as people who live in Southern California. Like your happiness is not God's end goal. The stuff you've been given is not to make you happy. Now, joy and happiness may come as part of this stewardship journey with God. Like don't feel bad if you enjoy the house you live in necessarily, or if you enjoy the new car you got. Like those inherently aren't bad things, but we have to remember we are stewards. And so everything we have, everything that is at our disposal, not just material resources, but time, energy, abilities, these are all to be used for the kingdom, 100% of them. Nothing is ours. Jesus says, take what I've given you and go and advance my kingdom. That's really important. So he comes to this third servant who squanders what the master had entrusted with him. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like squandering because he returns the original amount. But we see he violates the master's original intention. The intention wasn't to guard and protect what little you have been given, but to go out, maybe even risk it to advance the master's interests. The third servant chose not to invest his master's money, but instead he buried it. He didn't steal the master's money. Like, he didn't blow it on something dumb. He just buried it and didn't do anything with it. And this servant said the motivation was fear, right? He says, I knew you were a hard man, but his excuse doesn't make much sense. He said that he knew his, his master expected a return on his investment, so he hid the money where there would be no return on the investment. If he really feared him, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so what the master does here is he points out what's really going on with this servant. It's not fear necessarily that was driving the servant. The slave was lazy. Do you guys catch that in the story here? The servant says, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent. But his, ma his master, verse 26, answered him, you wicked and what? Slothful servant like a whole new layer to this parable that honestly, like, my eyes were open to this week as I was studying this with you. The heart of this servant's sin is not fear, but is laziness. He did not have the master's best interest at heart, and he wanted to spend his time on his own interest. So he did the safest possible thing and buried the money. I believe, and I'm speaking to myself here as much as anyone else, one of the greatest generational sins of, of my people, the 30-some-odds, plus or minus 10 years, is laziness. What are we doing with all that God has given us? 
There was a time in, in the church community when, when there was maybe a sin of, of working too hard, right, of not enjoying the, the rest of God. I do not believe that is our issue with, that we have to grapple with today. I believe one of the prime issues we have to grapple with today, just like the servant, we are lazy with all that God has given us. And maybe it's ignorance. Maybe we're just kind of are used to living our day-to-day lives caught up in the cares of this world. We haven't known anything else up until this point. Or maybe it's conscious laziness, choosing to put off and distance the master's interests in favor of our own. Regardless, I think when we come to a text like this, there's a bit of a reckoning we have to do in our souls. Will we continue to choose to be lazy about the master's mission? Do the safest possible, maybe another way of saying that is the absolute bare minimum Christianity demands. Or will we have the master's best interests in mind and pursue the things of this kingdom? The master's response is anger and judgment. He takes away the talent from the lazy servant who had one and gives it to the servant who now has ten. And Jesus celebrates the two other servants that use their talents and generate a return based on their efforts. And he chastises the servant that did nothing and was afraid or was too lazy. And Jesus is telling a story not to scare anyone, but he's telling a story to prepare us by telling the truth about the expectations or responsibilities that come along with following Jesus. I was chatting with... uh, a guy who's been a pastor for, for decades and decades, and now he's part of Anthem TO. is this kind of roving missionary, church planter, pastor, trainer, a guy named Steve. And, and we were just talking about uh, this text in particular. And one of the things he was saying is he, about six months out of the year, travels to different parts of the world and trains pastors and kind of helps start churches. And so he's in India, Hong Kong, China, Nepal, kind of all these places. And, and one of the things he, he commented as we were talking about this text is he said, it is so easy to be a Christian in America. So little is expected of you. Like you can just kind of put the tag on your name that, oh, I'm Bert, I'm a Christian, and, and no one's going to hassle you about it. Like it doesn't really have to affect every part of your life. It doesn't have to affect your money or your family or your job or your schooling or whatever. And he says in almost every other part of the world, being a Christian is hard. It comes at great cost to you. Your name, your reputation, your livelihood. So being a Christian in America is quite easy because we can own a Bible. We can own 15 Bibles and never actually open it. We can show up at a Sunday service but never actually engage in the mission of the church. We can give a little bit of money so we don't feel bad about spending the rest of ours, but we don't know what it means to be financially tied to the well-being of a church and to the advancement of his mission. So this is so easy to be a Christian in America. And Jesus is telling us the truth about what life with him actually looks like. The disciples, you, me, every other believer in history of the world is accountable for the life that we've been given, the life that we are living and have been trusted with, each according to his ability. So I want you to see something in this text. I want you to see uh, the symmetry in the rewards and the judgments in this parable. Ben, you can put this up here. Is I want you guys to see side by side how the master reacts to these different servants. So in the reward, the first reward is praise-filled approval. I mean, if we're talking about searching for the approval of anyone, we should yearn for the praise-filled approval of the Father. The second reward is more responsibility. 
As a reward for doing well with what the master has given you, he's given you more responsibility. And the third is that you and I will someday enter into the joy of our Lord. These are the rewards that Jesus is talking about as we talk about investing our time, abilities, money, resources, whatever. This praise-filled approval, well done, good and faithful servant, more responsibility. That as you do well with what God has given you, he gives you more, more influence. more. I know lots of rich people who are incredibly generous, and the more they give away, the more that seems to come in. Enter into the joy of our Lord. Now look at the judgments are kind of an inverse of what is happening here. The third servant receives no praise. He's got no further work or responsibility. In fact, all is taken from him. It's not only like a demotion, but he's stripped of, of everything. And no joy in the master's presence. In fact, Jesus says this goes a little bit further. And this worthless man, as he says in verse 30, is cast into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is that, by the way, that verse is a bit of a, a picture of, of hell. We're not going to dig into all that is in that verse. But the big idea is that servant is not welcome in the kingdom of God. And that is a harsh reality to grapple with. And the final verse of, of these two stories is, is a picture of hell. And it's not an emphasis of, of the pain of fire. It's not an emphasis on the eternal suffering or anything like that. What we have here is an emphasis of the pain of separation. And that is the picture of hell that Jesus gives us as a response to this. There's no one and nothing to see. You're in outer darkness and nothing to do. You are eternally unemployed, have no role, no responsibility, but forever feel the regrets of of lost opportunities, misspent chances, stupid choices. We have here a really severe picture for squandering what God has given you. So once again, our conclusion, uh, like much of this portion of Matthew, lands in this space of choosing faithfulness, choosing diligence, choosing wisdom over unfaithfulness, over laziness, and over foolish thinking. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his absence, and he's challenging them to do good, faithful work with all that he's given them. So he's talking to his disciples, and he's preparing them for when he leaves. You and I live in the time period in the story of God where he has departed earth. He has ascended into heaven, and we eagerly await his second return. This, I cannot think of another text that has more apt implications for you and I. He's literally talking about how to live today in 2018. This is Jesus speaking prophetically to us. God has entrusted you with a whole heck of a lot. What are you doing with that? So when we come to the end of this text, I think a really important question to answer is what does readiness look like? Because I would hate to leave you guys in this vague abstract place. Or maybe another question would be how should I live in the time before Jesus comes back? And so we get some hints in these parables. In the parable of the ten virgins, readiness looks like prepared waiting. Right? Not just waiting, but prepared waiting. All ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom, but only five wise ones are prepared in their waiting. They have brought extra oil for their lamps. What does prepared waiting look like for you and I? In the parable of the talents, we we learn that readiness not only looks like prepared waiting, but faithful working, like an active contribution to the kingdom of God. And what we'll see 
at the very end part of this chapter, what we'll hit on next week, is that the parable of the sheeps and the goats, we'll explore that next week, we're, we're given another image of readiness, and the image there is loving the least. So what we have today is not a complete picture of what readiness looks like, but we're going to tackle those first two. We're going to hone on those in our community groups. We're going to meditate on them as we get ready to respond. We're going to, I hope these are, you know, rolling around your mind. I'm going to focus on the two that we have in front of us. And there is a 19th century bishop over in England, J.C. Ryle, and he contrasts these two parables. I want to share this quote with you guys. And he says, The parable of the talents is very like that of the ten virgins. Both direct our minds to the same important event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Both bring before us the same people, the members of the professing church of Christ. The ten virgins and the servants are one and the same people, but the same people regarded from a different point and viewed on different sides. The practical lesson of each parable is the main point of difference. Vigilance is the keynote of the first parable. Diligence, that of the second. The story of the virgins call on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. Vigilance diligence. Those are the two words, if nothing else, I want rolling around your mind this week. Vigilance and diligence. As we eagerly await the second coming of Christ, is this something that occupies space in our minds? I feel like I was just, you and I were just having a conversation the other day about this. Like, I, how often do I think about the second coming of Christ? And all its beauty and glory and celebration, but also, what does that mean for our lives here and now? How, how much space does that occupy in our worship? Fortunately, we have, we have songs that actually direct us to that, and we just come out of this Advent season that is also very helpful for directing our worship in that way. Is the second coming of Christ occupying space in your prayer life? Are we actively putting our hope in the reality that Jesus is coming again to make everything right? so you don't have to make everything right. Jesus is coming again. So as we think about diligence, what is that application for you? It is to do good, faithful work with all that Jesus has entrusted you. That's the big picture. Your spouse, your kids, your home, your job, your money, your abilities, your personality, your connections, your influence, whatever. Do good, faithful work with all that Jesus has entrusted to you. All these resources are in the hands of you and the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. You are called to participate in that effort. And so the question we wrestle with is, what do you have and and how can you use it? I love that little clause in the parable of the talents that said, each servant was given according to his abilities. We're not all held to the exact same bar, if you will. But Jesus has entrusted you with something. He's entrusted you with something. He's entrusted you with something. What are we going to do with that? So what does that mean for us to recognize that everything you possess, both material and abilities, comes from God and belongs to him? He's entrusted it to you as a steward. So the encouragement here is don't be a consumer. Be a manager. Recognize that there's a coming day when you will be held accountable for all you have managed, the things he has entrusted to you. So some practicals that actually filter its way into our life, kind of under this umbrella of live in such a way that your resources are invested for God's kingdom. 
whether it's using your time and abilities to further God's kingdom, whether it's being generous towards the poor and to fund God's mission in his kingdom, or focus on building margin into your life and family so that you can share with those in need. So that may translate into limiting your pursuits of this world and holding on to the stuff of this world with loose hands. So I'm going to invite the the crew to come up. I'm done talking, but I want to encourage you with something really specific and practical. So if you're a note-taking kind of person, it's a great spot to take a note or to be remembered. I hope this maybe finds its way into the community groups this week. But I'd encourage you to leave here tonight and do a bit of a life audit. Just an audit of, of your life. Do it with your roommates, do it with your spouse, your kids if they're old enough to participate in this, and and ask the question, and Ben, you can put up this final question, who or what is getting the best we have to offer? So do your life audit and filter through this question, who or what is getting the best we have to offer? And I would encourage you, no one's checking up on you this week that you actually did, but I encourage you to be honest about it. As you're kind of thinking about life, as you're doing a bit of that audit, be honest with all that God has entrusted you and and who or what is getting the best of you. And I'm going to be really bold here and say if it's anything other than Jesus, you have some serious spiritual surgery to do. The primacy of Jesus is written all over the pages of Scripture. And if you are his disciple, that means he comes first. That may be really easy for some of you guys to just that encouragement to keep going, to press on, to to fix your eyes on Jesus and align your life accordingly. But for others of you, it may take a little bit of restructuring in life. And I'm not asking you to restructure your life according to the priorities of Anthem Ventura or the priorities of your community group or, or whatever. I'm asking you to search Scripture for what Jesus has taught about, how he has modeled for us, and to align your life around those priorities. God has given us everything and is entrusting us with it. Are we going to be prepared or unprepared when he comes? Are we going to be consumers or managers when we're held to account? Who or what is getting the best that we have to offer? Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. Father, as we take some time to respond this evening to a stark, harsh reality as we take moments to meditate on you and what you're calling us to as we take time to sing songs that direct us back to you. God, would you give us the courage to do that audit in our life, to ask the bold question, who or what is getting the best of me? And not only the courage to ask the question, but the courage to make changes. Father, we desperately need your help in this process. So would your spirit be at work in our hearts, encouraging us, reminding us of all that you've said. God, and would we see everything you've entrusted us as things to leverage for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.